friends, it's Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Check. This show is all about the path to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. You're in for a treat today because we have Elizabeth Carr, the first baby born in the U.S. via IVF, on with us. We talk about so many things that never occurred to me, like the pressure she felt being the first IVF baby and how it's really impacted her life. You'll hear her talk about the Joneses. Just a heads up, those are the two fertility doctors, Howard and Georgina Jones, who did the procedure on her parents that got them to her. And you'll also hear her talk about Louise Brown. Louise Brown was the first ever IVF baby made, and she lives in the UK. And I just wanted you to have a frame of reference. So here's Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? So good to see you. You too. It's funny, we, we've had to reschedule this a couple of times. And when I reached out in December, you were like, yeah, it can't be December because everyone wants a piece of me. So <laughs> why don't we start there with what December is and why everybody wants a piece of you in December? Yeah, December is absolutely my craziest time of year. And it's because it's my birthday month. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. Yes. I was born 40 some odd years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and now, December 28, 1981. And I was the first in vitro baby in the United States. And so that is why everybody kind of wants to haul me out on my birthday and make sure, is she normal? How's she doing? You know, those so funny of- that that happens every year. Like, even though they know, they just want to prove it again a year later. Yes. It's like clockwork. It's so funny. So when you and I got to talking in person, which was a delight earlier or a few months ago, so many things you brought up that I know you wrote about in your book, which we will, of course, link to, but that I just never thought about that you have to think about as the first US-born IVF baby. So tell us what some of those things are and when you started to realize in your life that it was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll answer the second part of that first, which is I realized it was a thing. I mean, I, I joke that I feel like I've always known from birth because it's not a joke that my first press conference was at three days old. Oh my gosh. So not many people can relate to that kind of experience. But, you know, my parents made an effort to always tell me, you know, mommy and daddy had you because of some very special doctors and a lot of science. And then when I got a little bit older, I sat down and watched the Nova documentary of my own birth with my doctors, Howard and Georgiana Jones. And they explained the whole procedure to me in detail. Mm-hmm. And so that's really when it dawned on me for the first time, like how much everybody went through to have me and like why this was a history making moment, not just like, oh yeah, I'm the first, you know, it really sunk in. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, over the years, there's just been a lot of stuff that like nobody else in the world other than Louise Brown, who was the first in the world, kind of knows what I've gone through or what I'm dealing with because there isn't anyone else in this position. So crazy. So talk to me about how your parents were lucky enough to end up in this position. How did you get to be the first IVF baby? 
Yeah. Well, if you ask my parents, they will say it was, it was not lucky. Of course. And <laughs> you know, I, even as I said that, I'm like, it's definitely not luck. But at the same time, it, it was the first miracle here that opened the door for so many other miracles. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, my mother had three eptopic pregnancies. Mm. And they later came to understand that the reason she was having these eptopic pregnancies, so she could always get pregnant, but not stay pregnant was because of scar tissue from a botched appendix surgery when she was a teenager, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so on the occasion of her third ectopic pregnancy, where she was very close to dying because there was a lot of internal bleeding, the doctors basically told her, well, we're really going to need to take your fallopian tubes. And so they removed her fallopian tubes. And the doctor then in the next breath said, well, you realize this means you probably will not have children of your own. Mm. And so they kind of sat with that for a little while. And on a checkup appointment, just to make sure she was healing properly from the surgery, her OBGYN actually said, you know, I just came back from a conference where I learned about this thing called IVF and it was successful in England. And he threw like a one page Xerox black and white piece of paper across the table at my mother and said, maybe it's something to consider. Oh and that God. was it. He had no, they had no idea really what it was, who it was for. And there wasn't a program in the United States yet. Like they were just starting this experimental program down in Norfolk, Virginia. So that's how wow. they started. And so, okay, talk me through how you're, because I know you've talked about it with your parents a million times. So they see this piece of paper. Were they like, of course, let's give it a go? Or were they like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a little bit of both. They had started exploring adoption. And they both came from, you know, fairly big families. My mother was a middle child of three. And my dad was the oldest of four. And so they still had this in the back of their mind of like, we really still want a child of our own with our DNA and you know, whatever. Mm. And so they basically like read the single page flyer <laughs> and said, you know, what's the worst that can happen? We just will end up exactly where we are right now. Let's take a shot. And so they had to get a letter of recommendation written by their OBGYN and like be accepted to this experimental program. And luckily, other than the fact that my mother had no fallopian tubes, she was very healthy and young. She was in her late 20s. And so doctors Howard and Georgiana, after they applied, called and basically said, how soon can you get here? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I love this, too, because I do think it's so important to spend time and energy choosing your doctor, your IVF doctor. But think about like when this was literally the only choice in town, you're like, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, they they did not have a choice of right. who to go or who to see. But, you know, my mother did say that when she and my dad talked to the Jones, they were immediately at ease and just felt like if this was going to happen, these people were the people to make it happen. So they they immediately yeah. just felt very comfortable with them. But yeah, I mean, you, there's no like five questions to ask your totally, you know, totally. There was none of that. Right. You're like, I don't love their bedside manner. I think I'm going to switch. Like, nope, can't do it. 
Wow. Okay. So did the media blitz with your family, like were they open about it through the process or once you were born? (laughs) So in addition to my parents, there were like 10 other couples going through this program as well. And every couple had a different protocol because they had not been successful yet. Right. So they didn't know what was going to work or what wasn't going to work. So everything was kind of hush hush. Nobody was really allowed to talk to everybody else. It was kind of like a, oh, I hope you're successful, but I hope we're the ones who are successful Mm -hmm. kind of deal. And it wasn't until the embryo was transferred on my mother's birthday. They Mm -hmm. were thinking happy birthday on on transfer day and had a cupcake and the embryo, like one in each hand, essentially. And when she was confirmed to be pregnant, my parents got a phone call from the Jones and they said, well, good news and and other news and they give us the other news first and they said well you know you're pregnant that's the good news the other news is that uh you happen to be our first success and so they had a conversation actually about do you want to stay private do you want to you know go public etc and my parents felt very strongly like no people should know our name our story and and know if this works or not but that wasn't all released until it was confirmed my mother was pregnant. And it was basically like a couple from Massachusetts has been confirmed to be the first, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then as they got closer, the due date is when their name and identity was released. Although if you watch the Nova documentary of my birth, there's a very funny moment where they're announcing the pregnancy and my dad is standing in the sea of reporters asking questions because they had given a false description of him to the press so that he could come and go from the hospital oh, without being that's so <laughs> cute i love so it they like knew who they were but not not really, not really. you never seen them and how did your parents parents and family react to this because it was still so experimental yeah i mean everybody was pretty cautiously optimistic i will say and just excited. I mean, my parents had been trying since they got married, essentially. And my parents were not shy about telling their families about all the heartache they had had. So everybody was just kind of rooting for them. And actually, both sides of the family flew down to Norfolk like a day or two after I was born because my parents had rented a condo down there for the last month of my mother's pregnancy. So she wouldn't have to keep flying from Massachusetts and back. So that. that was pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so the miracle happens, you're born. And when do you consciously remember understanding that you were born a different way? Probably when I was very, very little. You know, people, the press have followed me my whole life. And so literally every time I had a birthday, you know, they would want to Still. talk to me. Yeah, exactly. So you know, those interviews started, I went on the Good Morning America and Today show when I was like four. So very young, very young. I knew that like most people don't get to go on TV or be in the newspaper for their birthday. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But age seven is really when that like I had watched this documentary and it was explained to me. And then that's when it kind of like dawned on me like, okay, Mm. they had to go through a lot to have me. And I remember you telling me some stories like the reporters would come to your school. Yes. Right? Tell me about that. Yeah. 
There was one in particular that, I mean, all, all through my childhood, but there was one in particular that they were doing a follow-up story on me. I was in high school and it happened to be around the time of the homecoming dance. And it was my first homecoming dance. Oh my and gosh. They, they wanted to go to the homecoming dance with me. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, no, under no circumstances. But they did end up getting like B-roll footage of me like walking around the high school after school instead. And I thought like after school, like most people will be in sports, like it won't be a big deal. But there's nothing like a camera crew following you to have all these like friends all of a sudden right. who are just kind of saddling up to you. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there were some things like that that throughout my life that just, you know, aren't an everyday experience. Yeah. Did you feel pressure to oh, be a certain way? Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's the tough part is when you realize how much work and effort and how many people are involved, not just my parents, but like doctors and nurses and scientists and all these people, how many people are involved in just getting you, you know, here? Yeah. <laughs> I always had this like thought in the back of my head, like, man, I hope I was worth it. And I mm. always felt I put a lot of, you know, my parents didn't put pressure on me, but I put pressure on myself of like, I have to be the best. I have to be smart. I have to be articulate. I can't be rude. Like people are paying attention to what I'm saying and doing all the time. And I was very aware of that. So yeah, I definitely still a have lot. That's a lot of pressure. To carry. And yeah, yeah. It's a, because, it's a lot. because the fear then would be like, Oh, look at IVF. It made this kid so rude or right. Whatever. Exactly. Because I was this, I was this unwitting spokes baby, essentially. You like I was the person that everybody was looking to to hang on to hope that they could have a family of their own. And so it's you're very aware of that. Even as a young child, you're very, very aware. A lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that you still are you still in touch with those doctors who created you? I was right up until they passed away. Yeah. Yes. Every year for my birthday and Christmas and every holiday we would chat. We visited each other back and forth over the years, many, many times. And actually, when I had my first newspaper internship down in Virginia, I actually stayed with one of the doctor's fellows so that I would be safe. My parents were making sure that I was, you know, so in a cute. safe environment. And Howard and I, Dr. Howard Jones and I had a standing lunch date where he would take me every Wednesday. We would go out and find the greasiest diner and have... I love it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. I love that. And and so from that like initial cohort of experiments, basically, other uh, you were the first, but others were born as well, right? From that. Not from that very first one, other than okay. my mother. That was it. Wow. So the next success is about, I think it's two years younger than me. Okay. And after they had success with my mom, basically they kind of put the brakes on everything and said, okay let's see if we can duplicate like let's go back and analyze everything and see exactly what we did so that we can you know make it happen again do it again amazing and i know you have a relationship with louise brown right Ew, yes. how did that develop <laughs> so i think she and i have both been aware of each other over the years obviously because of our station in life but it's always been a running joke that like you know nobody had ever gotten us in a 
a room together before. And so I think I must have said that in passing to somebody and they passed it along to somebody else because the next thing I know, it was the MRSI conference uh, that Dr. Angie Beltos puts together every year. And she's like, we're doing it. We're bringing you and Louise together on stage for the first time. And of course, you know, like, that's our life, right? Like, we can't just meet up like normal people. Right, has everyone to has to see it, like, of course. It has to be this like build <laughs> up and crazy thing. But she and I immediately hit it off because, you know, we were comparing notes about ridiculous questions we've been asked and just all the different experiences we've been through. And, and really, it was like looking in a mirror. She yeah. she really is the only person who can understand my life. I love so, that. I yeah. love that. And so you ended up choosing to stay in this field for your own work. And I think that is so fascinating. So tell us what you do and how you chose it. Yeah. So for most of my life, I was actually a journalist. So I worked at the Boston Globe for 15 years. Unsurprising to no one, I was writing about health and science. Yes. Um, (laughs) So I actually got started. I've always done advocacy. I've always, you know, done advocacy work for reproductive technologies since I was young enough to put sentences together. I I think the first time I was really involved in advocacy was like age 10. Mm -hmm. So the advocacy stuff had always come. But as a writer in my 20s, I guess, I started reaching out to people in the field just saying like, hey, I have this really strange skill set of like, I know the IVF industry. I explain complex things about health and science for a living in my day job, like happy to do some writing for you. So I started ghostwriting for people. And actually, that's how I got connected with genomic prediction where I am now. I started doing some some writing for them to kind of create tools for, you know, patients essentially mm-hmm. to understand all of these really complex pre-implantation genetic tests yeah. in language. And then I've kind of bounced around the industry, but I've, I've been with genomic prediction for a while now. And it's such a privilege that mm-hmm. I get to help explain technology that, you know, was not, was not even available when I was born and is so helpful to so many people. And so it's really, it's always so important to me that, you know, whatever we're explaining, like it's said in terms simple enough that a seven-year-old watching a documentary about her birth could understand. That's always kind of what I go back to. So. I love that lens that you're always looking through. I know you have your own family. Were you scared when you started your own family that you might have to go down this road? (laughs) (laughs) No, the joke in the family is that we always joked that like we could see the headline of IVF baby has IVF baby. Right. I did not have an IVF baby. Right. My son, I did not need any interventions to have my son, but I was never worried. I just felt like if I needed reproductive technologies, then they would be there for me. I really had no, um, no fears or qualms. I didn't worry about that. When I did tell my mother and father I was pregnant, though, they kind of were like, okay. And they really didn't. Like for real? Well, and they didn't really breathe a sigh of relief until my son came out. Yes. Because, again, she could always get pregnant, but not stay pregnant. And so it was like, well, we've been down this road before. (laughs) Um, And she really didn't want to let, you know, my dad and her get too excited. Yeah. So... 
And when you, so you meet your husband, you're dating. Mm-hmm. How do you, are you like, like Tinder profile? I know you did not meet on Tinder for the record, but like profile, like, hey, first US IVF baby born. I mean, how soon does it come out? <laughs> so my first husband is this, the father of my son. Okay. And we went to school together. So he, I had known him from he knew. high school on. So he knew it was not a big deal. Yeah. My second husband, my current husband, I met when I was in my 30s, and he tells this story of seeing a picture of me up on a podium. And I happen to know that, like, the photo was from a Resolve gala that I was speaking <laughs> on. <laughs> and he just remembers thinking, like, I don't want to ask her any questions about what this is about until she decides to tell me. Mm. And I was very impressed. He didn't even Google me, which if you take like one second and Google me, you'll know immediately. Of course, yeah. Half naked baby picture of Life magazine. Right. But, you know, I told him and he was just like, oh, okay, cool. He didn't really digest and understand it until he went to a conference with me. And it was like, you're this like weird kind of famous. You're like, like a very popular celebrity at certain conferences. Yeah, like you can go to the grocery store. Right. People don't know who you are, but if you walk into a room full of embryologists, people know immediately who you That's are. That's so it's crazy. Very, yeah, it's very, it's like a weird kind of fame. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So tell me about your book. Your book is called Under the Microscope, which is such a great name for Thank so you. many reasons. <laughs> When were you finally like, you know what, I'm just going to put this all in a book so everybody can stop asking me questions? Or what was the impetus for the book? Yeah. So funny enough, I did not write a book. This book was not intended to be for the general public. Okay. This book started off as a pet project for my son. So he's 14 or 13 now, almost 14. He started asking questions about like, why, why did people care what I had to say? Why was I famous kind of thing when he was like, I don't know, probably seven or eight. And, you know, every time I tried to explain it to him, it was like, "Mm, I'm not doing a good job. This is not making sense. Like, why did he was like, why did, why are grandma and grampy famous? Like what's going on? So I started writing a book to him like in letter form almost of explaining like why this was important and why you know i do have all this attention and how i felt about it because nobody had really ever asked me you know they just kind of reported on my birth and went on with Mm. their lives so originally i wrote it for my son and i sent it you know and i'm i'm a writer and every writer and editor needs an editor so i sent it to a friend to read (laughs) and just say like do you see any holes and does this make sense you know kind of thing and he just so happened to be louise brown worked on a book and he was louise brown's publisher oh my gosh (laughs) no very well and of course he said to me well now you you know that this should really be a book (laughs) i was like well that wasn't really what i intended but if you think anybody other than my son would read it okay sure so he actually added some sections that gave like historical context outside of my life about like what's going on in the IVF and reproductive world. Mm-hmm. But that's really how the book came about. Wow. And so first, the very first copy went to my son. Amazing. In terms of 
sort of, do you envision yourself staying in this field, in this world forever? I mean, you're so gracious. You you come to these conferences. You are a, a celebrity there. You answer everyone's questions. You take a million pictures with them. So obviously, you like it, right? Like, I, I guess, kind of like your husband's, how do you feel about it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely days that I wish I could turn it off. <laughs> right? Yeah. But on the other hand, I just always go back to kind of how I was raised that like, if telling our story and not having privacy could help just one other person or one other family, then this all was worth it. And so that's kind of how I approach everything. So, you know, I, I always come from the lens of, I don't care how you end up building your family or if you decide to be child-free or whatever path you decide to take. But I feel very strongly that everybody should know what their options are and they should know their options before they need them. Because the worst time to make a decision is when you are facing crisis or an infertility diagnosis and you're just trying to navigate these unknown waters. If you have at least some baseline knowledge of like what you potentially could look into without thinking too hard about it. That's my goal. I want everybody to get to a place where they know that they could use surrogacy or egg donation or IVF or adoption or be child-free or whatever it may be. That's my goal. So Mm -hmm. I never turn away a question. I don't think there are any dumb questions. You know, there, there isn't a stigma around this. And so I have been very open and that's just kind of my line in the sand, I guess. I love it. Do you and Louise Brown wish each other happy birthday every year? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you do. We message frequently on uh, Instagram Messenger. We're, we're all like that. Yeah, she is a sweetheart. And uh, yeah, we're trying to figure out how I can get over there. She's been over here. I got to figure out how I can get over there. Yeah. Just, it's a so. better trip right now anyway. Yeah, exactly. like, yeah. yeah. Okay. So just in closing, I love to ask, is there any cliche or phrase or saying that you think about often? Maybe something your parents said to you. Yeah, I think in my case, the fact that they always say, my parents would always say, there was just one egg and you were it. Mm. (laughs) I think that's the one thing that's very overlooked about my parents' story. You know, people wonder, well, how many cycles did you go through? And my parents are like, that wasn't even a thing. They retrieved two eggs. One was no good. Here she is. That's it. Right, right. So, you know, in talking with people, I, you know, I don't want people to think that it's always going to happen on the first try. But right. on the other hand, it does only take one. Only takes so. one. Yeah, it's <laughs> a really good point because here I am talking to you. <laughs> oh, you're such a love. Are you going to co- be at ASRM again this year, you think? Yes. Okay, good. Well, I'll definitely see you then. Yes, for sure. Thank you for doing this. You're so awesome. Of course. Can't wait to see you. Thanks for having me. What a treat. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being on. Please remember, you don't have to go through any of this alone, especially not infertility. If you or a loved one are struggling to build your family, reach out to me, incirclefertility.com, grab a 15-minute phone call, and let's see if we can get you the support that you need. We have another amazing episode next week. I can't wait for you to hear it. Talk soon. Talk soon.